The following interview took place at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. And now, a conversation with Ambassador Gilad Erdan, interviewed by Rabbi Mutti Seligson. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Rabbi Mati Seligson. I am associate director of a small Jewish website that some of you may have heard of or known, know as Chabad.org. And uh, I'm a spokesman for the Chabad Lubavitch movement. Today, we're honored to have this spirited conversation with His Excellency Gilad Erdan, Israel's ambassador to the UN. Till Until recently, Ambassador Erdogan served in, as ambassador to the U.S. as well as to the U.N., a post that was held last by one person, uh, Ambassador Abba Eden, in the 1950s. Ambassador Erdogan is a steadfast defender of Israel in a place where anti-Israel lies are institutionalized. Ambassador Erdogan constantly fights for Israel on the world stage and makes the truth heard loud and clear. Prior to serving as Israel's ambassador to the UN, Ambassador Erdogan served in the Israeli Knesset for 17 years. And during that time, he held several ministerial positions, including the Minister of Public Security, Minister of Strategic Affairs, and the Minister of Environmental Protection. He was a member of the Security Cabinet and led several very important reforms. So we'll jump right into it. And uh, you've lived... Good afternoon. <laughs> uh, some people say I don't need a microphone, but nevertheless, I'm going to use the microphone because uh, God gave me a very strong voice. Yeah. It, uh, it's a special honor that you're here. This week, uh, you had a lot of business in New York, yeah. and you still made it here to join us. So thank you. Yes, thank you, Moti. And uh, yeah, it was very important for me to come for the first time to see with my own eyes the national retreat of uh, JLI. And uh, before I start uh, answering your question regarding my personal experience here, um, I have to thank the people who have helped to make this important event happen. And I mean Rabbi Kotlarski, uh, Rabbi Mintz, and of course the Rohr family. And I learned that uh, I, uh, I daven at the same uh, shul together with Mr. Rohr at uh, KJ in uh, New York. So I don't know if he's here. But thank you uh, to the to the Rohr family for everything that uh, you're doing. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to say, yeah. I want to say a few words about the importance of JLI and uh, the importance of Chabad uh, in general, because I have deep appreciation and love to the Chabad movement for many, many years, as even as a politician in, in, in Israel. And it's not only about 
my son uh, had his, uh, my Bechor had his Pidyona Ben in Kfar Chabad, or the fact that my daughter just worked at uh, Chabad's Upper East Side as a counselor in their uh, day camp. But other than that, I mean, the most important part is that I truly understand and I believe that Chabad has exactly the, the right formula or philosophy of Chanoch Lanar al Pidarko, the right way to bring Jews closer to our tradition, closer to our values, closer to our heritage. And you know what? That's the secret. I mean, we all understand why that's why we're here. We all understand that when many or most of the empires in the history of the world collapsed, what kept us together was our Jewish tradition. So that's what Chabad does in my own eyes. These are, this is the importance of JLI courses and we all understand also in Israel, looking at what's happening in the United States, that Jewish education is the best remedy for, against assimilation. There's no other way to, yeah, to fight assimilation other by introducing people to Jewish values, Jewish traditions, Jewish heritage. So coming here with my family, Honestly, it wasn't easy. I don't know how many of you moved with your uh, kids, and Baruch Hashem, I have four little kids, uh, moved with them to a new country. Uh, two of them didn't speak a word in English. And uh, we used to say that moving with your family is always challenging, but moving with your family during a pandemic, at the height of the pandemic, is exponentially more challenging, but the thing that helped us was your hospitality. So let me also uh, say that uh, I got my family, ex we, we were accepted, I mean, with a lot of hospitality everywhere, in every community that we visited. And if there's something that I already learned and I will take with me back to Israel, once I'll be in Israel one day, uh, is that it's again about Jewish education. And this is a lesson for the Israeli government as a whole, because we thought, sometimes, I mean, it, it still happens that if you grow up in uh, the Jewish state, so uh, Jewish knowledge, tradition, uh, would gonna, is going to fall from the sky into the brains and the minds of the kids. It's not going to happen. Jewish heritage and Jewish values and the knowledge is something that we should always nurture and cultivate and make sure that the young generation is being exposed to the beauty of our values. That's what Chabad does, that's what you do here, and that's why when I look at you and I see everything that is happening in this beautiful resort, I feel, as the representative of the State of Israel, much more optimistic, and thank you. You deserve a round of applause. Thank you for that. This, this week's been a very tough week for Israelis, for Jews everywhere. Um, we very much appreciate the role that the IDF plays and the fortitude of the people of Israel 
in, in many of them who had to be in, in bomb shelters for over the weekend and over Shabbat because of what was going on in Gaza. So the operation in Gaza wasn't the first one, probably won't be the last. How do we get here? Where are we going when it comes to Gaza? Yeah, thank you for your uh, question. It's uh, very updated, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, but let me join also things that you said and how much I'm proud of our brave soldiers that are protecting our citizens day and night. And it's also important because our enemies are pointing and at our home front and our civilians to also thank the, I mean, the people of the South, the people who live around, I mean, the Gaza envelope and Ashkelon, including my parents, 75 years old, that had to run dozens of times to the shelters in the last few days. But nevertheless, their resilience is unbreakable. And we see that the people that live in the southern part of Israel, it, they're only growing the number, the resilience, so we should all also give them a round of applause, the people of the South. Asking me about how did we get to the uh, current situation in Gaza, one cannot understand it without recalling, remembering uh, what happened in the past. You know, I grew up in Ashkelon, which is like 10 kilometers from the border with Gaza, and I vividly remember times I was young, but times when, you know, people from Gaza could come. The, my family, my parents' house was built by a contractor from Gaza. We could have entered the Gaza Strip even for shopping. Amazing. And then uh, we made the mistake of the signing the Oslo Accords, allowing uh, the murderer Arafat with his, with his gang to return to the Palestinian Authority, allowing them to carry weapons. And then, uh, back in 2004, five, uh, we just commemorated uh, in Tisha B'Av, uh, 17 years to the uh, disengagement from Gaza, where we uprooted thousands of our own people, uprooted more than almost 20 uh, Jewish villages, there was hope. There was hope that uh, this painful uh, plan is going to encourage and build trust or bring calm to the region. Uh, I was one of the members of Knesset who strongly opposed this plan. And uh, unfortunately, I was right. I'm not happy that I was right, but I was right. I mean, it was interpreted as a Jewish weakness. Uh, they chose, the Palestinians in Gaza chose the Hamas. They literally threw the Palestinian authorities' representatives, representatives off of rooftops. Literally, they escaped. And since then, you know, Gaza is being controlled by a designated terrorist organization, designated also here in the United States and in uh, Europe. Uh, their charter says loud and clear that their goal is the destruction of 
the state of Israel. Every square, square inch that we evacuated, they used as a launching pad. Every, I mean, materials that are entering Gaza, they try to use uh, in order to strengthen, the, to strengthen their terrorist infra infrastructure. So it's not what, that we have any other choice. I mean, we could see what's happening in Gaza. This time it was the Islamic Jihad. Last year during Operation Guardian of the Walls, it was against uh, Hamas. But we and me as the ambassador at the UN, I am trying to explain the international community that if we continue on the path with their mistakes, when they make all these immoral false comparisons between a designated terrorist organization and a vibrant democracy abiding by the international law, and they continue to call both sides yeah, for calm, this is not going to change the reality in Gaza. The situation in Gaza for the future can be changed, and the formula is only if we are going to do two things. First of all, restore our deterrence, and it started to happen. Restoring our deterrence meaning that they understand that each time they attack our home front, they're going to pay a heavy, heavy price. Personally, by neutralizing them, as we like to call it, or uh, paying a heavy price also when it comes to their uh, economy. But improved economy is not enough. It's not about economical uh, uh, affairs. It's about restoring the deterrence because we're dealing with murderers who want to annihilate the state of Israel. Their ideology is no different from Al-Qaeda. Their ideology is no different from Daesh. Everyone knows it. So it's not about improved economy. We're helping their economy. There's no siege against Gaza. We allow hundreds of trucks with goods to enter Gaza every day, where even during the time they fire missiles at the border crossing. Um, many percentage of the electricity in Gaza, in Gaza is being provided and produced in Ashkelon's power plant. So it's only about restoring the deterrence and in addition, which is my role, making sure that the UN and the international community is holding them accountable. Because each time that the people of Gaza see that Israel is being blamed, so why would they rebel? Why would they try and change these terrorist regimes controlling their lives? So the only combination that can work and improve the future of Gaza is restoring deterring our deterrence, making them pay a heavy price, and making sure that the international community is going to hold them fully accountable for what is happening. This time, I think we succeeded to meet all of, all of our goals, including uh, convincing and proving that's what I did, that even the children uh, that tragically ki was, uh, were killed during this operation were killed because of the missiles of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and not because of Israel. This is the only solution for Gaza. Well, moving from one hostile place to another for Israelis. The UN is notoriously anti-Israel. 
It's a place some will call a fortress of darkness and lies, and yet you've had very impressive successes there. You've been elected the vice president of the General Assembly. Uh, you were successful in having the resolu historic resolution passed about Holocaust denial, and Israel was recently elected to the UN's prestigious Economic and Social Council. So what's, work, what's your work like in the UN defending Israel in the global, global arena? Yeah, thank you for uh, this question, Moti. And you, you mentioned the bias that uh, Israel is facing at the UN, but sometimes... Just a little. Yeah, sometimes people are not aware of the extent, the scope of the bias uh, that we're dealing with at, at the UN. So maybe people will try and guess. Uh, maybe first I'll ask you a question. Uh, how many resolutions are being are made against Iran or North Korea or Syria every year at the UN? Can someone like take a guess? Oh, oh we're dealing with professionals here. Okay. This is yeah. an educated So you are right. One, one, one resolution uh, every year. And, and how many against Israel? 15 to 20 resolutions every year. So a country 0 .1, that represents 0.1% of the world population gets 74, 75% of the condemnations that are being decided at the UN. It can go crazy more than it gets at the UN. So, uh, yeah, as you told me, uh, my day starts, you know, when I enter the UN doors, it's, it's like an uphill battle every day. But I always remember what the, the teaching of the founder of Chabad, that we used to say many times during Hanukkah, you know, a little bit of light can dispel much darkness. And I truly believe that when you have faith and you know that the truth is on your side, you cannot uh, despair. You have to fight, and when you fight constantly, you also win. So you ask me, okay, but what are your tactics? How you try to improve Israel's situation at the UN? So mainly, I use two different tactics. The first tactic is showcasing Israel's enormous contribution to the world. And I don't know if you heard about it, but the UN has something that is called the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. The, the UN prioritized what are the world uh, most pressing problems, and they tried to prioritize finding solutions. So it's not a surprise for you, but for them it's a surprise that Israel is one of the world leaders in many of these topics. I mean, looking at uh, water scarcity, how to find solutions, food insecurity, cyber defense, digital health, sustainable agriculture, many of the pressing uh, challenges, Israel can contribute and can help other countries. So what I try to do is that by showcasing our contribution, for example, just lately I hosted an event with 25 African ambassadors, 
and I showed them how Israel, together with Israeli NGOs like Innovation Africa, how we connect hundreds of African villages to running water and electricity, literally giving their people life. So whenever they are exposed to our contributions, it makes it much harder for them to vote against us. And it helped because it was at the time when the Palestinians tried to revoke uh, Israel's status at the European, at the African Union, and we succeeded to postpone to postpone an anti-Israeli uh, resolution. But unfortunately, showcasing our you know positive sides is good, but it's not enough. I also believe that we should always be on the offensive. You know, uh, a good, uh, the best. Uh, Defense is a very good offense. As I said, we have nothing to be ashamed of. We know how moral is our military, how moral are the people, the Jewish uh, people. As Minister of Strategic Affairs in the past, and when I was tasked to fight against the BDS organization, the most important was to expose their connections to terrorists, to expose what they do with their money. So exactly that, these are the things that I initiate at the UN, exposing the lies, exposing our enemies, when I know that there's a terrible Human Rights Council decision comparing Hamas to Israel, so I stand up on the podium and like President Herzog in the past, I tore up uh, this resolution to make them, to show them that, again, this Paper is anti-Semitic, and Israel is not going to even look at it. And that is why I passed a resolution to provide member states with practical tools how to fight the terrible, ugly phenomena of Holocaust denial and distortion and to demand accountability from the Internet companies to clean up their platforms from the hate and distortions. And that's why I offensively, I mean, uh, offensively, on the offensive, uh, launched a campaign to convince member states to not to attend the shameful Durban uh, commemoration, which was also an anti-Semitic hate fest event. event. And we succeeded to double the number of uh, countries that did not attend to this shameful uh, event. So thankfully, uh, I think, we're starting, we're starting to diminish or erode, if I can say, the automatic majority in Israel, against Israel at the UN. It's not going to happen overnight. I'm not naive, but it's an, an ongoing process. And I think that Israel's position today at the UN is stronger than ever. But finally, and to conclude, I would say only one word. After talking with you about the tactics and everything, one thing we should bear in mind, whatever, what our first Prime Minister Ben-Gurion used to say, it's not important what the Gentiles are saying against Israel, it's more important what the Jews are doing. Thank you for that. There's, it sound, you mentioned the progress at the UN, and we all watched the Abraham Accords unfolding after years of whispers of these relationships, and 
I'm sure it's have, it has a constant impact on your work in the UN. And so how does it affect your work at the UN? And what's in store for the Abraham Accords? What can we expect? First of all, I have to say that uh, it looks like Israel is starting to uh, catch up with Chabad in terms of the number of outposts that we start to open across the world. Uh, now, I mean, it will never happen. You have too many shlichim. We'll, we'll never uh, catch up with... Well, we're in uh, a race for Mars. But we're learning from you. I mean, we're learning. Mars? Well, we... Let's cover the... <laughs> Earth before we get to Mars. Uh, Mars. Uh, but yes, uh, the Abraham Accords definitely uh, have an influence on my work at uh, the UN because it helps me to utilize, leverage the accords and to try to show the world and many member states that coexistence with Muslim countries is possible, which means that maybe, maybe, the real obstacle for peace is Palestinian rejectionism. So in a way, it helps my work there, and I do it by you know, holding as many events with uh, our new partners uh, and inviting the uh, UN ambassadors to participate. You know, I even lit the uh, menorah candle together with my Moroccan counterparts in Hanukkah. I planted uh, trees together with the Emirati uh, ambassador. We're doing many events together. We're bringing uh, high-tech companies to and introducing them to uh, investors here. Uh, in, in New York to show them how our collaboration can help and change the Middle East for good. But I think it's also important to uh, remember the, uh, the impact that these accords are going to have beyond. The UN is important, but it's going, the, the, it's going to influence the Middle East, and this is much beyond the UN, whatever is happening uh, inside the UN. But before I'll explain the, 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 the transformation that we're going through, we have to remember what happened, what led up to the signing of these historic accords. And I think it was clear that there were three catalysts, that the convergence of these catalysts led up to the signing of the accords. The first catalyst was that we never had wars with uh, Morocco or uh, um, uh, the Emirates or Bahrain. So it, it was easier for us to encourage our people to meet each other, even discreetly, and to starting to build this you know, bottom-up approach where people are getting to know each other. The second catalyst was that through, when time passes, even them, they started to realize that they have so many shared challenges with Israel that it might help them to work and collaborate with us because we are world leaders on exactly these same, solving these same challenges. Like, we live in an arid region. They need water. They need sustainable agriculture. They also need uh, uh, cyber defense. And maybe above anything else, we share the same 
security threat enemy. We share the same uh, threat, which means Iran. And after the US administration, little by little, withdrew not all of its troops, but uh, huge part of it from the Middle East. So they, we almost remain by ourselves. And they agreed that by collaborating with Israel, uh, they have a lot to gain. And there was another catalyst, the third one, which was maybe the most influential. And you know, we have to, uh, in our tradition, you have to give the credit to whoever deserves it. So this time, it was the Trump's administration. First time, we had a very committed American administration that conveyed a clear message. <laughs> it's from your side, okay? I'm a, I'm a diplomat, I can't relate You're neutral. to it. Yeah, I'm just ex explaining what happened. And, uh, and uh, what happened was that uh, the, 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 form, the previous administration conveyed a message that the road to Washington basically passes through Jerusalem, meaning if you want to improve your relations with Washington, you have to also improve your relations with Jerusalem, and they were willing to incentivize uh, the Arab countries that normalize relations with Israel. So this was another catalyst that led up to the signing of the accords. But I'm giving the credit also to the current administration because I was in Washington uh, as Israel's ambassador when the, the Biden administration uh, started to function. And they also immediately established a joint team with me in order to identify new Arab countries that potentially can normalize relations uh, with Israel. And now looking uh, at the future, Moti, because you always ask me about the future, I think that the two shifts, uh, the two different shifts uh, in, in that we see now taking place in the Middle East are going to reshape the future in a way that God willing, almost 100% until next year uh, seminar here, we will be able to announce uh, more Arab countries that uh, normalizes relations with Israel. Why? Because these two shifts, the first one is the psychological shift. First time, we call it warm peace. First time, it's not only about a piece of paper that was signed, that no more wars. It's about opening embassies and inaugurating direct flights and visiting one another. You know, at the height of the pandemic, more than 200,000 Israelis visited Bahrain and Morocco and the Emirates. So people are getting to know each other. And suddenly the children of Abram see how much they really have in common. So it, it changed the whole approach. And in addition, the second shift is the, 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 the explosion of economic prospects. Every day we hear of new exciting story. You hear of Israeli farmers growing avocados on the Atlas Mountains. You hear of Emirati governmental, governmental company investing billions of dollars in Israel's biggest uh, natural gas reservoirs, Tamar. So all these, I mean, this combination of psychological shift and the 
the fact that now people could, can see with their own eyes the fruits of these peace accords is going to lead, God willing, to other Arab countries uh, following suit. And it's no accident that while President Biden visited our region, you could already see Saudi Arabia agreeing to open its airspace to Israeli airlines, Israeli carriers. These are, of course, baby steps, but I, I think the direction is very, very clear, and it's a very optimistic one. Moving away from, from the optimism, uh, you mentioned Iran, yeah. and we all know that the negotiations are ongoing about uh, the infamous Iran deal, and it's not very clear where they're heading. We know what Israel's stance is. Israel's made its position very, very clear. Where are things heading? Where do things stand with the negotiations with Iran? So this is maybe the most crucial, uh, important question uh, for the future. When it comes to Iran, it's a consensus. In Israel, I hope most of the Jewish world as well, because we all understand uh, what we're dealing with. Uh, what we're dealing with. They don't hide it. I mean, they openly say, by the way, it's not only about Israel, they openly say they want to impose their radical Shiite hegemony on our region. That's why the other uh, moderate Arab Sunni states are also very concerned. But regarding Israel, they say loud and clear, we want the uh, the, the annihilation of the uh, Jewish state, and uh, therefore uh, there is a clear consensus in Israel to oppose the old deal that was signed with uh, Iran, which is called the JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the deal that was signed during the, the Obama term. I can tell you there is nothing less comprehensive than this agreement, which is like, it's so... It's, it's fundamentally flawed. It's flawed because it does not address the missile program uh, of Iran. It's flawed because it does not address the malign activities of Iran, meaning the fact that they support all their terrorist proxies that surround us with hundreds of thousands of missiles. And mainly it's flawed because it does not halt Iran's race towards acquiring nuclear capabilities. It's hardly like merely puts a delay. It kicks the can down the road, and it's not going to be a long, long road. I mean, in less than few years, most of the restrictions uh, will be lifted. So that's why we are strongly against these, uh, this agreement, this deal. Unfortunately, uh, we have profound disagreement with the current administration here. They, as you know, support the rejoining uh, uh, to this deal because they believe, on the one hand, they understand that it's not perfect. They understand that they will need a future improved deal. But they have this way of thinking that by rejoining the deal, they'll be able to unite the international community to put the pressure all together on Iran to agree to negotiate what they call a longer and stronger deal. 
For Israel, it's very hard to understand why would Iran agree to negotiate a deal which is worse for them after they would, they'll be allowed to return to the old flawed deal. It's, it will never happen. So, you know, sometimes uh, things are happening with uh, uh, God intervening. And even though the Iranians could see how much the administration wants to rejoin the deal, so they, they dem their demands got only <laughs> higher and higher and more and more demands. And even President Biden couldn't agree uh, to their demands. And right now, even though they're dragging their feet, continuing to violate any international uh, commitments uh, that, uh, that they took upon, still the international community is giving them uh, time to, uh, to answer and maybe to agree to return to the deal. For Israel, let me make things clear. We are saying two things. The first one is that the only formula that can stop Iran from acquiring nuclear capabilities is the wise words of President Roosevelt. Speak softly, but carry a big stick. Unfortunately, the international community have spoken too softly with the Iranians, and this is the time now to present them with the big stick. And when I say big stick, I don't mean economic sanctions. Economic sanctions are important. We need more, we need crippling sanctions. But as we all saw in other countries, when you're dealing with uh, tyrannical regimes or dictators, they can, you know, they, people can suffer. Economic sanctions can last for many, many years, but they, we don't have time. They should present with a credible military threat that would force them to decide between their nuclear ambitions and their own survival as a regime. When it comes to Israel, when it comes to Israel, now I'll make it even clearer, and we convey these messages to everyone, including President Biden. Whatever they decide, I mean the international community, if they sign an international agreement with Iran, Israel is not going to see itself as being bound by any international agreement that is jeopardizing our future. And since we're talking about our security and the existence of our country and the Jewish people, we'll do whatever we need to do, and all options are on the table. So we've covered some of Israel's challenges in the international community, some of the challenges and some of the news that's going on in the region. I'd like to move to a more personal question, if I may. Uh, you mentioned Israel's vibrant democracy, and we know Israel's about to go into its fifth election in three years, and your career has spanned 17 years. Most of your successful career in politics, you were elected to the Knesset six consecutive times, every time you were in the top three of the ballot. Uh, there are even 
many people who are saying that you're a leading contender to uh, replace Netanyahu after he retires. So what drove you to remain here and not join in this most recent election? And also, what brought you here in the first place? Yeah, so you, uh, for me, it's, it's an exciting day today. Uh, first of all, because I'm here, but also we got today the results of the uh, Likud's primaries. And for me, it's the first time after 24 years uh, that I'm not part of these primaries. Because as you mentioned, I, I was running starting from 1999. Uh, but, you know, uh, as a joke, I would say that at the rate we are holding elections now in Israel, it seems that I'll have another chance quite soon, I might have. Uh, Probably before the conference is over. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Uh, anyway, uh, it, it's not good to have so many elections, but, you know, at the UN, now I, I try to utilize it as an advantage because I'm telling them, uh, we don't need to prove any more anything about uh, how uh, vibrant our democracy is, and you know that uh, uh, we have had we have had more elections in three years than the Palestinians have had in 25 years. So it's uh, talking about liberal values and uh, you know democratic values, but. Anyway, yeah, it is a personal question because I decided after so many years in the uh, Israeli public sphere uh, to give up my uh, position as a senior minister and to come here to represent our homeland. And uh, I did it when I remember my, uh, my time as, uh, as a student in Netiv Meir uh, boarding school, the yeshiva boarding school. And I remember when, uh, you know, I had this dream to uh, represent Israel on the world stage. But it was like a dream uh, when I was young. And one day, uh, then President Herzog, not the current one, his father, uh, he came to visit us. And he told us how he stood on the podium and he tore up the Zionism, is racism, Resolution, And when I heard this story and I imagined myself, it, it lit up a fire inside of me. And since then, you know, I, I decided that this is a dream I have to fulfill. And when I got the uh, offer from uh, then Prime Minister Netanyahu to uh, represent Israel, you know, simultaneously in, I think, the two most important arenas that uh, we have, in front of the American administration and at the UN. Uh, so I immediately agreed, uh, believing that uh, I can have the, great, the greatest impact here on uh, our future. Some of you may uh, doubt it and question and ask me, but really, do you really believe that the UN can make a difference? I mean, the UN doesn't, it's not really effective. So why do you think that there's something that can be changed? So I want to, again, tell you a, a short story uh, because clearly you're not the first uh, Jews that are questioning the effectiveness of the UN. 
but it should start with a question. Does, does anybody here heard the, the nickname in Hebrew of the UN, Um Shmum? No, it's like Joe Shmo. Joe Shmo, you know. So Um Shmum, Um in, in Hebrew is the UN. Okay, Umot Meuchadot. So many years ago, in 1955, uh, then he wasn't the prime minister. The first prime minister of Israel, Ben-Gurion, uh, after he resigned, he became the minister of defense. Believe it or not, in 1955, we were still dealing with terrorist attacks coming from Gaza, and they were debating how to stop these terrorist attacks. So Ben-Gurion, who was the Minister of Defense, he said we have to, it was under the control of Egypt, Gaza, at the time. So he said we have to occupy uh, Gaza and cleanse it from the terrorists. So Prime Minister Sharet told him, Ay, are you crazy? Israel cannot decide by itself to extend its borders. If it wasn't for the UN partition plan in, back in 1947, there would never have been a Jewish state. So Ben-Gurion, the founder of, uh, of the state of Israel, the modern state of Israel, told him, it's nonsense. Israel was established only thanks to Jewish courage and not because of the Um Shmum resolutions. So he tried to, I mean, undermine the importance of the UN, and uh, he, he was right at the time, because at the time, uh, no one attributed uh, much influence to the UN. But today, unfortunately, we know that whatever happens at the UN in New York doesn't only stay in New York. And why? Because today, our world is also being dominant by the internet, social media, media. We used to say today that, you know, a lie can travel the world in a, so quickly even before the truth can get its shoes on. So when lies and delegitimization is being spread against the Jewish state, it doesn't stay only in New York. You remember... Well, what, what, what happened during, uh, a year ago, uh, during Operation Guardian of the Walls, uh, falsehoods were spread against Israel, excessive use of force, killing children, and then the UN uh, made some terrible decisions, and mo those decisions were amplified outside of the UN, and you remember what happened. Jews were attacked on the street of London, uh, L.A., New York, it sparked uh, anti-Semitic attacks. Today, resolutions that made at the UN can be used against our soldiers at the International Criminal Court. Today, UN resolutions can be used to put pressure on American companies like Ben and Jerry's to uh, boycott the state of Israel. And that is why today, as I said, it's important to showcase Israel's contribution. Uh, that's why I take UN ambassadors to visit Israel, to teach them about the 3,000 years connection between our, our people and Jerusalem, show them about the diversity of the state of Israel. But it's no less important, maybe even more, 
to fight the bias, to stop the anti-Israeli resolution. That is why I thought uh, by coming here and also by deciding to stay here, uh, the impact of my work uh, can be even greater. But let me finish with one last sentence. Our enemies, they, they have built a network of lies, a network of hate, a network of incitement. And we used to say that in order to fight a network, you need to build your own network. So I can fight for Israel, but I won't be able, I, I'm not able to do it alone. We have to buy, build a network of truth, a network of values, a network of hope, and that is exactly what you're doing here in JLI seminar. That's what you're doing in Chabad. That's what we are doing all around the world. And when I see you here, and when I see your commitment and your faith, I feel much, much more optimistic regarding our future. So I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. And on behalf of the people of Israel and the government of Israel, thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador Erdogan, and much hatzlacha in your important work. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.